God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turnips Podcast. I'm Mike Him, and tonight I'm here with Rick Him from the Decolonist Buffalo Podcast. We're from the Heat Wave Podcast. We have Chewy Him and ML Him. How are you guys doing? Hey, I'm doing awesome. Good to have you guys. So tonight we're going to talk about Aslan. And uh, this is going to be another just uh, educational episode for me. It's not really a topic that I'm uh, familiar with, nor would I uh, feel comfortable speaking on. But yeah, I would love to learn more about it. I've heard a little bit about it from this podcast. And this is like something that I came across early on when I got into like Marxism. Eventually, you will, you of course, find out about uh, indigenous struggles, decolonial struggles. As soon as you get into Marxism in any kind of way, you find out about the intersection between those two. And inevitably, you will come across Aslan. And the imagery itself is what's first set off a red flag for me. It's, I mean, literally, like, it is red flags. Like, the symbols themselves are weird. Like, the coloration is weird. I mean, if you start searching the symbols, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But a lot of the things they were talking about would just be, like, nationalism. In a decolonial way, usually it sounded like I would give it a pass, usually because, again, being uninformed, I'm like, I understand at least that nationalism among colonized communities is different than it is among settlers and colonizers. But then once I started to see again, the red flags with oddly fascist coloring and symbols, as indigenous as those symbols may be in origin. So it just, uh, it, it seems sus. Yeah, so I want to just hand it off to you guys and have you talk about it, since you're obviously more informed on it to me, but that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And that's pretty much my level of familiarity with it. So uh, Rick, let me hand it off to you, because you have some uh, fantastic notes to go through. Yeah, I think we have to discuss how we identify ourselves, because that's a big factor on talking about the subject. So obviously, People that listen to the podcast know I'm Comanche. I was born in Mexico. I lived in Mexico for a little bit. But the other guests, Chewy and ML, are you guys Chicano? Are you guys Mexican? How do you identify? I can go first. This is ML. Uh, I was born in Mexico. I'm from like a little really rural town in Mexico. Um, so I personally identify as Mexican because the tribes where I'm from are basically all integrated into the regular Mexican culture, or at least were in the past centuries. And so like nobody in my town would speak a native ling- like tongue or whatever, but it would. They, everybody is sort of like ascendant from uh, different indigenous peoples there and black people uh, and obviously white people. <laughs> in my town, mostly French, but I don't personally think that like I identify as indigenous. I, just, I didn't grow up as an indigenous community or whatever, uh, as you would call it. So I personally identify as just Mexican. Okay, so hello, everybody. I'm Chewy, he, him. And I'm a bit different from ML. I was born and raised here in Arizona. My family is from the northern state of Chihuahua in Mexico. I'm very familiar with that part of the country. For me, I've always felt like there's something wrong with the state because um, (laughs) if you go there, uh, I see you laughing, Rick. Um, there's, there's obviously like an explicit, like the caste system kind of still exists over there, unfortunately. Like people are treated differently, people are perceived differently, and how people talk about each other is very much different. So whenever I hear someone say they're Mexican or describe themselves Mexican, I've always like been like confused because literally other people that are Mexican, you hate them because they're <laughs> they're different ide- and like. They're, they're awesome, but they're Mexicans. It's so it's confusing. But for the people that don't know, Chihuahua is, in my opinion, Chihuahua and most of like the northern states of Mexico are pretty explicitly settler colonial. And there's a lot of history behind it. But yeah, if I were to identify myself, 
I, I like I always tell people I'm Mexican, but like my family back in Chihuahua, they always call me Chicano. So either is fine for me. Okay, cool. So like maybe we can talk about what is Oslan? You know, I know you guys are, I don't want to say where you guys are going to school, but what is Oslan? What's the first time you heard about Oslan? I'll say pretty quick for me. Well, I heard two different things. One is like a land claim, like it's a territory. The other one is a spiritual, it's a spiritual political aspect. It's like nationalism. It's not really like a land claim, but it's most, you know, that territory that used to belong to Mexico, but was lost after the Mexican-American War. You know, like I said, everybody has different definitions of Aslan within the Chicano community. And we have to talk about the Chicano community because that's they're the mm-hmm. ones center in this when they promote the ideology of Aslan. You know, so yeah. So who wants to go first? What what do you think Aslan is? Or what have you heard? What your understanding? Yeah, I can go first, Emil here. So I heard of Aslan when I was a kid, when I first arrived to the U.S. I guess teenager. And there's a lot of uh, teachers here in the area that like are part of like or the organization that we're a part of. They're like alumni, right? And they graduated and they went on to high school and then they have chapters of our organization in the, in the high schools. Uh, so I was part of one of these things and uh, one of these chapters and that's where I learned about Aslan and this was like ninth grade or something like that. So I've known about it pre-internet, you know, like <laughs> uh, I, I was not online at the time. I, I didn't even have a phone. So it's not a, like an internet thing for me, but originally what I, I understood Aslan as was the land claim. It's the, the land that Mexico lost in Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, you know. That's what I originally heard what it was, right? And then I feel like you can't really separate that from the rest of it because, like, you don't really even hear about Aslan until, you know, the Chicano movement, which focuses on the treaty. And, like, all the spiritual meanings and, like, spiritual homeland and all that stuff came after that. So I, I feel like you can't really separate the two, but... The concept of Aslan, not the actual land claim, and like the idea of Aslan comes from before that, right? Like it comes from the idea of the Mexica traveling from the seven caves or whatever, Aslan, down to where Tenochtitlan or Mexico City is now and founding the, the Triple Alliance, I guess. And so like that's where the original idea of Aslan comes from, but there's no... From my research, from what I've learned throughout the years, there's no really uh, like basis to say that the land that Mexico lost in Guadalupe Hidalgo is the same place that the Mexica tribe came from. Like, there's no really like archaeological evidence of anything like that. So that that's what I know Aslan to be, or right. at least some of it. Joey, do you want to chime in? Thank you for that, by the well, way. Well, I guess from my perspective, I'm younger than ML. Like the organization we're part of is Mecha. So I was never involved in Mecha until I recently joined like two years ago. So I wasn't like too familiar with the word Aslan. The first time I heard about it was from a, (laughs) it's crazy, but like when I was like watching CNN and they were like reporting on um, Richard Spencer and like explaining like this map of what he wants uh, the United States to be divided up as. And it basically showed the Southwest as Aslan, the South as New Africa. And like, I already heard of New Africa before, but I didn't know what Aslan was. So like after that, I did some research and that's how I found about it. But I didn't really care too much about it because it seemed like 
uh, it's kind of a thing in the past. So, but until like being much more involved within Mecha and still seeing people believe in the stuff, I yeah, that's my exposure to it. So yeah, we have. I think we Mike explained. Mike, do you have any questions before we go forward? I mean, you're you know you are not Mexican. No, I mean between um what you guys have explained so far, and then obviously what I listened to on your show, Rick. I do generally get the concept. I mean, I think you guys are doing a good job giving an overall view for new listeners. But again, I would recommend people go back to your show and check it out because, of course, you have explainers for the basics and everything. Yeah, but this, but, uh, this episode is going to be focused on that. So I think both of our shows are going to be good. Because I'm going to post this, obviously, on my podcast, too. True. So true. if they hear it on your podcast or mine, they're going to be listening to the same audio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think I'm just here for uh, comic <laughs> relief, mostly. I, yeah, I, I should ask like, any of the basic questions, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think... That's basically how I understood it. It was just like a nationalist movement. But then mm-hmm. the origins, I guess, are what make it questionable. And then, of course, like I said, the imagery. But then I guess in the present day, what also makes it weird is the, the ties. Like the first thing I question is how the hell did Richard Spencer even hear about it? And why is that the uh, why is yeah. that the movement of uh, why is that the decolonial or the indigenous movement that he has chosen to favor right away? That sets <laughs> off a major flag for me. So Oppen also yeah. promote, pr- promotes that. I don't know, kill him up and people that are listening. But, you know, before we go forward, I would actually re- advise or suggest people maybe to pause if they didn't hear the episode that we collabed, the Turn Leftist Podcast and Decolonize Buffalo. And we did an episode on Chicano nationalism. For me, it's episode 110. I'm not sure which episode number is for your podcast, but it's titled specifically on Chicano nationalism on both podcasts. So that's episode 110 on um, Decolonize Buffalo. I would also go back to the heat wave where we did the Gazing Anzadua. We did a collab, episode 105 on, on my podcast. I don't know what numbers are for your podcast. I also did episode 106 with um, Alexander Dawson to talk about university schools. But very importantly, episode 108, where I talk about quote-unquote Aztec neo-Nazi heavy metal bands. <laughs> and that's, that's a topic if you if you hear 110, you know, I think it was a 105, Anzadula, 108, the, the neo-Nazi Aztecs, like people will see why things are dangerous. So, but to move forward, we're going to have some talking points and we're going to, I'm going to go down the line. Uh, we're going to tackle them one by one. And this is the reason why Chicanos claim the territory of Aslan. So option A is, you know, talk about before the age of Spanish colonization, there was a group of Aztecs that migrated down. Uh, ML covered this a little bit uh, to what is now known as Mexico from an unknown place called Aslan. Uh, Chicano suggests that Aslan is somewhere what is currently known as the Southwest U.S. These Aztecs settled into what is not, not now known as Mexico City and created the capital, Tenochtitlan, uh, where they built their Aztec empire. And then the Spanish came and colonized a huge amount of land on the North American continent, which they call New Spain. That's the first one. The second one, B, is to fast forward to post-independence Mexico and the Mexican-American War, 1846 to 1848, after the United States won that war and took huge parts of land from the northern territory of, of Mexico in the north, uh, and they used a treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848. These territories will later become uh, the states of Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, Utah, Texas, New Mexico, and California. That's BC. Going to see the next thing, a common rhetoric among Chicanos is, is that by virtue of falling under the yoke of the U.S. imperialism, U.S. colonization, they, they are now the new colonial power the U.S. is in the region and claiming that 
Mexicans who stayed in those territories and are quote unquote indigenous. That's C. D is to fast forward to the 1960s during the Chicano Denver Youth Conference in 1969. The term Aslan was widely adopted. We can talk about that too, especially in El Plan Espiritual de Aslan, right? That's D. E. Some Chicanos also like to cite Jack D. Forbes, his book Azteca del Norte, Chicanos of Aslan, as a trustworthy source of Aslan. That's E. F. Uh, he uses Marxism to legitimize their land claims and to claim to indigeneity. That's F. So um, that's what the point you're going to cover. So, Diego, do you want to cover A a little bit before I, I go into my spiel about? So, the first one is about this folklore that Aztecs came down from the north and they settled in Tenochtitlan. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, like that part is like uh, true, right? Like the Aztecs do have the myth of like coming from the north and settling in, in Tenochtitlan. Well, actually, they have a, a myth of coming from up to down to Tenochtitlan, but they don't exactly say the north right now, but they just say up, as in up in the paper that they write the <laughs> the, the thing on, uh, but it's not really clear whether it's north in the traditional sense, right? Or like what we understand as north. But there, there's so far no evidence that north or that they came from anywhere even close to the southwest of the U.S., although the languages are somewhat related, I think. I think this is the last sort of claim that uh, the people that are still hanging on to this uh, part of the, of the Aztlan myth uh, sort of uh, hang on to, which is that uh, the languages in the southwest of the United States are somewhat related to the uh, Mexica languages, so to Nahuatl, right? Uh, so like, but this doesn't really actually mean anything in terms of like the tribe coming down from these places, you know, like it could have been thousands of years before that even. And then they came from a different place and like that's how the languages are related. But in terms of actual archaeological evidence that the Mexica people came from the Southwest is like nothing. So <laughs> I don't know what else is, is there to say about that. Joey, do you want to chime in before I chime in? You can go ahead. All right. So I, I have notes for myself. Do I do first off? I do want to acknowledge that there was immigration throughout the continent. I talk about this on the podcast about how you know communities itself they have stories about like migration that I don't deny. Um, but I have uh, within this claim I have two rebuttals. Uh, first, we can't claim that all Chicanos are Mexica. You know, that's impossible, you know? So if you listen to episode 110 on Chicano nationalism on both our podcasts, you will see why this is problematic. And then the second claim is that there is no indigenous communities in the U.S. Southwest that claim that you know, the, the American Southwest is called Asla. And that is itself is an issue. Actually, when I first started the podcast, I posted a video of an uh, indigenous dude at a meeting. And I wish I had it right here. I'll post it again. Uh, and this person, this native person in this town meeting said, this is not Aslan. This is, you know, and he claims his uh, native community's name. This is our land. This is not Aslan. To do that is colonization. This video is old. Yeah, so he's yelling at a cartoonist. You saw, you saw that video, right? It's, it's not a new video. So, but you know, at the same time, just like ML said, I had people, Chicanos, tell me that Aslan is in Alaska. Like, I, I legit, I'm, we're laughing here, but you know, for reals, I've heard this claim that it, it's in Alaska. 
you know, I heard this in Canada. I heard all these things, you know, so I'm not refuting the Aztec story, the immigration story or the creation story, because Comanches have a very similar story too. We came from the Shoshone people. We actually, we actually traveled south, right? And we, we you know, created our own community. But um, to go back, I think the term is Uto Aztecan language, but even that label is a little bit problematic because it lumps a lot of language together because I'm learning Comanche. And it's nothing like now. I'm going to say it's nothing, but there's, there's very small similarities. But the language itself, if I speak Comanche, I'm not going to understand a Mexica person or now a person, right? I'm not going to understand it. But, you know, I try to see the similarities, but there's even even like smaller classification of language groups. Like people say, oh, I'm Colotecan. But Comanches could be Colotecan too, because we are in the Colotecan language group. So it's just like all, all these people want to connect the dots it's just like in Europe. I mean, obviously, if you go back to Europe, I'm not saying Native people are European. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, like, if you go back in time far enough, that a lot of the Europeans spoke Latin, even though they were very different ethnic groups, right? So by what brought them together was this common language. So I think, you know, of course, there's a lot of history in the, here on the continent of Native people migrating and speaking to each other. But then there's going to be some similarities. But doesn't mean that specifically that these communities are Aztec, you know, so that's my spiel. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all that. I, I don't think that the languages being interrelated like that actually means anything other than the language that be, are interrelated. <laughs> like, all languages are in a certain region, right? Like, obviously, the Southwest of uh, the US is going to have languages that are interrelated with like the languages that are being spoken in the north of Mexico, right, uh, in terms of indigenous. So, like, it doesn't really give you anything in terms of, like, evidence to claim that, like, that's exactly where Mexica people came from because the languages, they, it's just as much as related to the languages to the south, you know what I mean? So, so I don't see how they can use that. Like, in and of itself, it, you just can't use that alone to claim that uh, Aslan existed in the Southwest, you know, I think it's disingenuous. I agree with you. Joey, anything? I don't want to just skip you. No, you're good. No, y'all are doing well. Are we ready for B? Yeah. So B is, you know, fast forward to post-independent Mexico, Mexican-American War. And then I think B is here together. So the U.S. comes in and becomes the new colonizer. And the people say from then, now the Mexicans that are there become indigenized. And this is covers other other aspects, but I think we'll I'll, I'll get into that later. But does anybody want to have talking points about the Mexican American War and the, the land claim from the U.S.? I personally never heard of people saying that, that Mexicans or the Chicanos have become indigenized uh, through yeah. this uh, sort of uh, process. Like I don't see how that would be possible personally, but. Uh, I think that's the same talking point as like, uh, I don't know if you guys pay attention to Jackson Hinkle's uh, talking point where he said that American settlers and Anglo settlers from Europe, or, you know, I mean, obviously Spanish people from Europe too, but like, you know, white British Anglo settlers, after time, he says that they become indigenized through the time, through time, time in squatting. Uh, he said that I covered on some podcast. <laughs> ML Space is like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds so stupid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think these people are confused in in terms of like what these things mean. Like, like for example, the the American 
nation exists, right? Like it, it tangibly exists, but that doesn't mean it's like, what's it called? It's not a settled nation. You know what I mean? Just because it exists doesn't mean it, it, it's like legitimate. That's what I'm trying to say, right? Like Israel exists, but it's not a legitimate state. You know, it's not a legitimate nation. It's sort of the same deal here. Like, yeah, a, a nation might have been created in this sort of process where Mexico and the U.S. were at war and uh, they lost a bunch of land to the Americans or whatever. And you might be able to call that a Chicano nation, but that doesn't then give you uh, permission or it doesn't legitimize the nation in and of itself. You know what I mean? You have to look at the history of how exactly and who exactly is in this nation and like what it is materially to uh uh, legitimize it in, in those ways. I I just don't see how you could ever legitimize it as an indigenous nation, personally. But yeah. Yeah, I do I do have notes. I, w- I can go through my notes if it's okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the claim, I think we all have heard it, is we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And this slogan refers to land lost by Mexico after the Mexican-American War. Many Chicanos claim that the creation of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is when their oppression at the hands of American settlers began. I want to, before I keep going, you know, want to acknowledge that there is anti-Mexican persecution from white Anglo settlers, 100%, you know? But in my point of view, that doesn't uh, classify Mexican, these Mexican settlers as indigenous, I'll say why. So in the treaty itself, there's a clear distinction between Mexican settlers and indigenous peoples uh, in the newly gained territories, right? And this division revolved around uh, savagery, savagery and civilization where Mexicans were described as settlers and as treaty. People always cite the treaty, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Mexicanos always say it, but, you know, they cited it so much, I was like, I need to read this fucking treaty, right? But in the treaty itself, it describes indigenous peoples as savages. Everybody knows that uh, the Declaration of Independence calls the native people savages. So, you know, people have made a big meme about it, which is true, you know? We've got to acknowledge that. But in this treaty itself, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, native people are called savages. Also in that treaty, in Article 8, Mexican settlers become citizens within one year after the war ended. So 1849 is when Mexican settlers became citizens, American citizens. And it was during that time, right after that, that you Mexicans, I'll read this from Manifest Destinies, the making of the American, uh, Mexican-American race by Laura E. Gomez. It says, Mexicans sought to, to differentiate themselves from Pueblo natives by claiming whiteness, and thus the rights of full citizenship reserved for white males in American society. Now, think about this way. In the U.S., natives were not citizens until 1924, and Mexican settlers became citizens in 1849. That's a big fucking difference. In Mexico, too, Native weren't citizens until the 1930s as well. And the treaty itself, it talks about not infringing on territory of or property of Mexican settlers compared to indigenous peoples where the U.S. came in and negotiated treaties in the 1850s with all the all the indigenous communities in, in the Southwest, which they gained. And what, what people don't understand is what used to be Mexico, what people call Aslan, there is right now 175 federally recognized tribes or communities in this territory that was lost by Mexico, 175 sovereign nations. 
that you know have a different relationship, different material conditions from from somebody that is descended from Mexican settlers in 1849. So for people to have you know say that they become indigenous because the Americans or the new new colonizers and they they become indigenized, but they these people did not have. If you could talk about like a Marxist point of view, the material conditions of indigenous peoples during that time, they didn't. You know, citizenship, the, the property was different. Everything, you know, historical analysis, these people were not indigenous. They lived as settlers. They sought to separate themselves from indigenous peoples. And there's a history behind that. And it was not until the 1960s that that was really uh, misappropriating indigeneity was actually more common among Chicanos. There's an article I just read that was really good describing that, but uh, does anybody have anything to say about this? Because <laughs> I see you said a lot. So that's my notes on that part. Nobody? I'm trying to think of it. I can add anything here, but um, I think uh, it's pretty much it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's a saying you saw me as indigenous because it's like, it's like you know, uh, I don't want to say too much because I, I do, I do want to leave something for the end, for the Marxism the Marxism analysis really important from my point of view, but um, you know, claiming you know these these mixing sellers were the bourgeoisie, and then another group of bourgeoisie took over, and next you know they're like, well, we're indigenous now, and it's just like that's not how it works, motherfuckers. That's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, yeah. like, it's kind of yeah. I, I, I do want to say maybe something. So there was um, people would want would probably want to say something about how the majority of uh, Mexicans. Uh, living in the Southwest as Mexicans during that time would probably they they would they would say something about like um, sort of the underclass I guess the people not included in the treaty uh, would be indigenous but most of those people were deported um, <laughs> after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo you know what I mean so they obviously the, what the treaty is talking about is the Mexican settlers you know what I mean like the Spanish people that were left over and continue to control the society in, in the Southwest. That's what the Mexican government is like representing at that time. And that's why you see a show up in the treaty and stuff, you know what I mean? I'm saying this just to say, if, if people weren't indigenous before the treaty, they're not indigenous after the treaty, you, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Joey, you want to say anything? Yeah, I just, I feel like y'all have talked it pretty well because I hear regularly where people talk about like the supposed land that Mexicans lost from from the treaty or like when they were transferred to the United States, the United States did not honor their supposed um, land. But like no one ever questioned like I'm, I'm speaking from like the Chicano school here at, a, at our university, how people regularly just talk about it, reference that. But everybody always forgets that. Well, all right, well, where did they get that land? Um, like some people may make the argument that they're taking us off and they're continuing to manifest destiny. But like, um, like I've mentioned before, a lot of the expansion of Mexico was northward instead of the United States, which is westward. So, yeah, that's one thing I just wanted to mention. Uh, you know, the next point D is about uh, Chicanismo. I think we, you know, we have to acknowledge what Joey was saying is like a lot of you know, from my even from my own experience, a lot of um, Chicano studies, you know, academia scholars, they push this narrative, these narratives to academia. People don't understand that academia universities are an economic machine. They they are like a corporation that wants to 
obviously pump students out, gain as much money as possible, you know, and people, these, these, these scholars make money by pumping out books. And we, then the next, the next part is about how Aslan was promoted um, through, you know, Chicano Academia. But even from my, my own experience, I remember when I was in UC San Diego and I took a, a Mexican-American study or something like that course, professor said, hey, you know, this is, this used to be, we're in San Diego, we, you know, this used to be part of Mexico, and I raised my hand, and I, and I said, hey, you know, like, this before, before that, it was Kumie territory, she was like, that doesn't matter, when you're getting too far, right, she, she said that, she blew me to the side, and I was just like, what the fuck, I hated that class so much, but, you know, the professor was like, I'm here talking about indigenous history, and she blew me aside, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, scholars are so invested in pushing this narrative that, you know, if, if they were to backtrack now, I feel like their ego or their career would be all for nothing because they've been pushing these nationalist narratives, these nationalist, you know, and what I think is our settler nationalist narratives to the point where you know, your life's been a lie, dude, you know, and how do, how do you deal with that? I know some Chicanos that that come up to me that said that, you know, they, they like had a, a, a nervous breakdown for like a good week or two after they start realizing, they start reading, you know, reading critiques about Chicanismo through an indigenous lens, you know, and they were like, you know, and other, other Chicano, even, even Chicano scholars and academics that said that they can't talk about this publicly because if they do, they get, you know, like scrutinized within the Chicago Studies departments. So I don't know if anybody wants to talk about that before we get into the, you know, the next yeah. part. Yeah. I mean, uh, Mecha, two to three years ago, uh, started a process of like, so let me, let me go back a little further because uh, Mecha was the one that literally started the slum thing, sort of. <laughs> uh, in the 1969 uh, Chicano Youth Conference, that's where Mecha was created and and Plan Espiritual de Aslan is like one of the foundational documents of Mecha. <laughs> and, uh, and now we're in D. Now we're, now we're in Section D. But keep going yeah, now. Section D, yeah. yeah. So the reason that it became so entrenched in, Ch in Chicano academia, or in academia in general, I would, I would say, is because the Mecha and the movement in that period of time was sort of all about trying to gain access into the education system, right? Uh, El Plan Espiritual de Aztlán, I talked about that, but also El Plan de Santa Barbara, which is the much bigger plan uh, in much more detail. It's basically a curriculum and like big book about how to set up a Chicano Studies Department. So like originally the movement is like, at least from the Aztlán, Aztlánist perspective, is to um, sort of educate everybody in into this sort of Aztlan ideology, right? So like it begins in as a student movement and then it becomes an academic movement because of that. Yeah. I do want to ask you questions because in the yeah. plan, the plan spiritual, spiritual the Aslan, I have the core right here. It says Chicanos must use their nationalism for total liberation and independence for our mestizo nation. And that right there rang alarm bells, right, <laughs> yeah. for me. Because it's like, what nation, at least like a nation separate from Mexico, is this, you know, like, because this is mestizo. It doesn't say indigenous nation. It's no. mestizo nation. It doesn't say mestizo nation. So to me, this doesn't seem like. So no, no, yeah, you're, you're totally right. And, and it's because from what I understand, the person that wrote El Plan Espiritual, which is like a poem, right? <laughs> um, 
is what's his name Aludista. Um, I think he he was born in Mexico and he was taught basically raza cosmica. What's it called? Like the basic Vasconcelos uh, ideology because he he just went to school. In, in Mexico at that time, right? And that's just what you were taught. And I can speak to this because I went to school in Mexico and this is what I was taught, you know? <laughs> uh, nowadays, if you actually go and, and look at, like, because sometimes the normalista schools will post their lectures online, right? Like from a certain high school, you'll get a, a lecture or whatever because of the COVID thing, right? Nowadays, they'll like, the normalistas are like a socialist rural school movement in Mexico. And they'll talk about like all the bullshit, like the actual stuff, right? But like go back a few few years ago and you, a few decades, I guess, and you won't hear none of that, you know? Yeah, I didn't hear none of that, you know? <laughs> I was giving the the straight, you know, this is an Aztec nation, a mestizo nation, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, that's what I was giving in, in school and that's what the books say, you know? And you can even tell that this is what he was taught because one of the early, early sort of taglines for Mecha is like, mi raza habla por mi espíritu, right? And that's a tagline that comes from UNAM, which is the Autonomous uh, National University of Mexico, which is the first uh, university in Mexico, which was after the revolution, was headed by none other than our good friend Vasconcelos, you know, and and, and he basically uh, inf- like infested the entire university with that ideology. So like everybody that goes there like gets a heavy dose of like Vasconcelos thought. So that's where he comes from, and so like he brought all of that into the into the <laughs> into the planet spiritual of the Aztlan, you know what I mean? So yeah, I think Mike had a question about normalistas. I do have a comment, but Mike can go ahead. I do have a comment. Well, Mike fixes this. Mike, Mike fixes. <laughs> so a lot of people need to realize that um, that Vasconcelos controlled. You know, like obviously he had a big part of like the whole education system. And when you know this dude going back to you know episode one ten, people that re- need to realize he was a, he promoted eugenics. The, the Raso Cosmica was really disturbing, right? Uh, I read it and I was like, I actually had to step away a couple of times from that book. I was like, are people really reading this? Is this really being promoted within Chicano studies? And it was so, Mexico was so ingrained in Vasconcelos ideology that obviously the Chicano, I, I talk about how Chicano nationalism was a, a child of this ideology when it comes to misappropriating it, indigenous you know, it's, it's, it's indigenismo, Chicanismo incorporated indigenismo within its ideology. And that's very problematic. If you don't know what indigenismo is, it's, you know, it's the idea that it's a mythology that all Mexicans are, you know, like somehow Mexica or some kind of indigenous, you know, it, it fantasizes indigeneity, it, it denies blackness, black, black history. So, you know, but that, but if you, people go to episode 110 or on Chicano nationalism, we'll see. Mike, I think your mic worked. Yeah, I think I should have got it fixed now. But um, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's unrelated to this about just the normalistas. I just heard ML talking about apparently there are socialist schools in the rural areas of Mexico that teach people the actual facts as opposed to these state run schools that teach them sort of an indoctrination program that goes along with some kind of central <laughs> colonial narrative about things, which is like, I don't know, I just find that incredibly based. 
Um, especially because like I would, if you had told me the, the schools were called normalistas, I would have thought that those would be the state run schools that give people a false education, not the other way around. So that sounds like something I'd like to do a whole episode on. I don't know if it's related at all to Aslam and it seems like it's something we could go off on too long of a tangent to probably do here, but I just thought that was really cool. Oh, definitely. The normalista high school in uh, where I'm from is called Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. <laughs> yeah, that's so sick. <laughs> So I just, yeah, I need, I, need to, I need to hear a lot about these for like a long time. You need to set aside the night. <laughs> That's hardcore. So, yeah. so the next, the next topic, uh, does anybody have anything else before we go to F? Because F to me is like, it's like a really quick, you know? So we talked about how there's a lot of influence from, you know, Vasconcelos in Mexico in education for, you know, for at this point, for a good 40 years, you know, and from the 60s, from the, you know, Chicano movement from the 30s to the 60s, 70s. But, you know, one person that is quoted a lot is Jack D. Forbes, and he claimed to be Lenape. What people don't understand is Lenape is Delaware, and there are a federally recognized tribe, and there are they were in the East Coast, and then they got relocated. Now they're in Oklahoma. Um, I called the Delaware themselves, and I spoke to people there, and they looked it up for me, and then I actually reached out to other Lenape Delaware scholars and they all said the same thing to me and i had different people verify that that enrollment that jack d forbes was not in delaware he's not a nape right he never was <laughs> enrolled in that tribe and there's no history of anybody with that name but they also acknowledged that he was problematic and you know that what you know like he that he claimed to be them and he wasn't them from my understanding from talking to the delaware people is that I don't think they know how bad this was promoting indigenismo. But the, the thing was that, you know, so first off, we have Jack D. Forbes claiming to be an indigenous person, writing, you know, books, whatever, as an indigenous person when he wasn't. We all know, looking at pretendians right now being out from universities, you know, that that's super problematic. And when someone like that writes, that pretendian writes stuff is, you know, they write wrong shit. And if he was alive today, people would challenge him, right? About he, like if he was Lenape or not. But this happened. He lived in a time where indigenous was rampant, right? He died like in, in I think in the nineties. But you know this 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 um aspect of the Notre book was written in the sixties, seventies, I think. And think about that time frame when that time frame existed. I mean, indigenism is still strong today, the ideology. And even and I said that even recently people started challenging it in Mexico. So we had to really take critique Jack D. Forbes' work, you know, just like Ward, Ward Churchill claimed to be native for a long time until he was outed. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz was claimed to be native in her book, but she got outed, right? A lot of people get outed. And when they write stuff, you see the discrepancies in their work things that should, they should not be talking about from a perspective they, they don't have a right to speak on. Like I said, Jack D. Forbes is an idiot. So um, <laughs> does anybody have anything on Jack D. Forbes? I'm personally sure not many people know. But I did check on him and I did background. And like I said, um, you know. I did, I did sort of read up on him and he has a ton of books, but I haven't read him. So I, I wouldn't have a lot to say to be honest. I you know, it's funny. Yeah, so it's funny. I, I see people promoting his work. That one book, uh, Stick Us to North, is so hard to find that even free resources, you can't find it. Yeah, like, I couldn't the, find it either. I, no, yeah. It's not listed under his like books that he wrote either. Uh, yeah. 
I had to like actually search the actual full name and then like I could find it that way. But it's like it's hard to find. It's hard to find. Yeah. So when people say, "Hey, you should go read," people should go read Jack Forge. I'm like, where? Because I looked online and there's one book on Amazon, but it's two thousand dollars. Right. I'm not paying two thousand dollars. And I do have a good collection of Chicano books because I for all over the last 20 years, I just collected them. Somebody said, Oh, you should read Borderlands. Okay. So I bought Borderlands, right? I bought all these books and I have a really good collections of I really want to I wanted to understand Chicano's perspective. But that's the one book I, I have not found even digitally. Right. And I will pay money for even for a digital book. So if anybody has that book digitally or a copy or have a physical book, I'll buy it off you. <laughs> I really want to read it because I, what was it that even like, okay, here's, here's the book I have right here. So you can see it, right? The Mexican Earth by Todd Downing. This, this book was written during World War II and it's written by a Choctaw author. So he, yeah, he's Choctaw author. But in the book, you can see the indigenismo. Right. So a native person writing stuff about Mexican, whatever, it's a really hard, you know, not hard read, but it's like really like, I think it's really bad. Right. I, I, I started reading, I really, I'm halfway through, I'm like, this is like really bad. And so I read the book, I started, I started reading the book and you can see the indigenismo flow through it. Right. You can see the propaganda flow through it. So it's, yeah, like I said, I, like I said in the podcast, like the indigenous uh, academia is always evolving to to kind of like debunk cellular narratives about ourselves and i think we're now i mean this has always been going on but now even heavier than before because we're talking about pretendians so now we're you know we're debunking the you know all the really fucked up things about it we have to catch up on some stuff and uh, this is why i focus about india and east small because i'm trying to you know help people debunk this garbage um but yeah you know enough about forbes the last part is about marxism right um, so I do want to give a quick intro. So for people that are listening, so in this section, I will show how Chicanismo has tried to use revolutionary politics and Marxism to reclaim territory that Chicanos call Aslan, uh, the American Southwest. Even though I'm giving critiques of Marxist positions, that's not mean I'm critiquing Marxism as a whole. I am Marxist. And I believe there has been an ignorance within communists about Mexican national history of Indianismo and Mr. Hasaje which leads communists to have the wrong stance, the wrong communists in the US. I will explain a little bit about Marxism to people who are listening to help people understand my critiques. Marxists analyze the world through dialectical materialism. And within dialectical materialism, <laughs> there are class and historical analysis. And then we have to talk about contradictions, how they have friction with one another. One of them, obviously, how Marxists talk about is the working class and the bourgeoisie. Very common, everybody knows about that, right? The other one that people don't really take into account is between the colonizers and the colonized. And I, I recommend On Contradiction by Mao to people read it so people can read it. And The Principal Contradiction by Torquil Lawson uh, to have a stronger understanding of contradictions you know, within Marxism. So we have to talk about the, how Chicanismo, the revolutionary politics of within Chicanismo, and how we talked about earlier how the, after the U.S. annexation of northern Mexico, there was, uh, according to October Lee, 1975, October Lee was, was a Marxist, I don't know what it was, but it was it's on Marxist.org. It says there was a rapid proletarianization of masses of formerly Mexican small peasant farmers which means that, you know, Mexico, North Mexico was agricultural society, you know, but it's still settler indigenous, right? 
And then when the U.S. came, these Mexican uh, settlers that were, you know, in agricultural, they became proletarians, right? They transformed into the proletarian class, into the, you know, the working class. So this assimilation in the American economic system positioned Mexicans that stayed in the U.S. into the American class struggle. So now they were, they were in the class struggle because now the white bourgeoisie were taking over, right? So the, due to the guise of class liberation, the class struggle has been and still is being used by Chicanos as a means to regain lost territory, so-called Aslan. From the earliest years of inceptions of Chicanismo, this, there has been a leftist literature calling for some, some sort of bringing back authority to Chicanos or Mexico. Uh, there's also claims of indigeneity. We talked about that. Uh, we're going to, I'm, I'm going to talk about two examples I saw on, on Marxist.org. So my, like I said, I collect books about Chicanismo, you know, and what I did also, I went to Marxist.org, which everybody knows Marxist.org, right? There's a bunch of Marxist free literature of Marxism, please go read it, right? But in there as well, you Google Chicano, Chicanismo, Aslan, a bunch of things comes up, right? So I'm gonna read two examples that I, that I have here really quick. First one is from the struggle for Chicano liberation by the League of Revolutionary Struggle, Marxist-Leninist, and I quote, in the U.S., after socialism was won, the Chicano nation may decide to become an autonomous region rather than succeed or become a federated republic. Regional autonomy may also be the solution for the administration of the areas of Chicano concentration outside the Southwest. That's the first quote. Second quote is from the Chicano struggle and proletariat revolution in the USA by Revolutionary Communist Party USA. This is revolutionary, I don't know. Uh, what party is that? And I quote, the, polar, the proletarian state will uphold the rights of the masses of Chicano people to land denied them to the violation of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which sealed the U.S. ripoff land from Mexico in 1848. This treaty supposedly guaranteed Chicanos certain basic rights to like right to land, water, and the equality of the Spanish language but like the treaties in the U.S. made by with the Native, Native peoples, these rights were quickly trampled on. In the struggles to uproot the legacy of national oppression and white supremacy, one important policy of the proletarian state will be to uphold the right of Chicanos, as well as Black people, Native Americans, to form the forms of autonomy and self-government. For Chicanos, this would mean the right to establish autonomy, self-government self -government within the larger proletarian states in larger er in large areas of the Southwest. This makes take form of a single autonomous region or several autonomous areas. This will mean that in contrast to things like Indian reservations, under the present system, the real needs of Chicanos and other oppressed peoples for some land and resources under the autonomous authority will be met. So both of these things have very have some very similar points. They both claim that Aslan is an actual land claim, right? So Marxists believe in the U.S. that Aslan is an actual land claim, and the second one invokes the Treaty Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and we already talked about the house seller land claim. So you know, like I say, what disturbs me is that the second one. Did you say that that was from the Revcoms? Revolutionary Communist Party. This is some of the stuff is old, like from the seventies. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't know yeah, if it was so. like uh I mean the Revcoms are a particular. I'm, are you guys all familiar with the Revcoms and Baba Bacon and they're a little weird, is all. Yeah, Baba but Bacon. yeah, 
Yeah, but you know, the point I'm making is like, you know, this is it's not just them, right? Yeah, yeah. It's that a lot of so I had a person attack her like this last week saying that Chicano revolutionary struggle is a proletarian struggle and they're indigenous. And how can I deny that struggle? You know, and it's a decolonial struggle. And I was just like, have you not? You don't understand what the fuck? Obviously, they don't understand what we're coming from. This dude looked white. The person, I mean, his profile picture looked white as fuck. So I, I don't blame him too much, you know, for not knowing. But like I said, I mean, if you are a Marxist in the U.S., like I said before in the podcast, a lot of Marxists like to look abroad a lot. They're like, oh, look, the, yeah. they know everything about the Russian Revolution, everything about the Chinese Revolution, everything about, you know, in Vietnam. But they don't know shit about the shit at home. Right. Their, their historical analysis is blank at home. They don't understand stellar colonization in their own country. So they think because they like even like the, the Anglo-Americans, I'm not talking about the Mexican sellers, like the American Anglo uh, sellers, they believe by, you know, putting a, a donning themselves as communists, like I'm putting a communist hat on. Now I'm not a seller no more. Right. So even like stuff like that, of course, they're not going to understand the complexities of indigeneity in Mexico, and they're not going to understand the complexities of why Aslan is fucking problematic. <laughs> but uh, is there anybody have a, before I keep going, does anybody have anything to say? I mean, I can make a million jokes. Like, Rick, I'm right here talking about fucking white communists and everything <laughs> about Russia, but don't know anything about what's going on here. <laughs> but no, I got nothing serious to put in. Sorry. Yeah. So I think um, it, it's, it's really rough because part of the, you know, the podcast was to educate people on, you know, about Marxist, you know, like indigenous issues and, you know, silicon but, you know, being, I talk about on the podcast a lot, being in these Marxist orgs, the non-native ones, you know, and the native ones too, some of them don't, don't understand the history of silicon in Mexico. We have people online promoting that all Mexicans are indigenous, or they're promoting that really weird, sick idea, you know, that, the Hinismo is good, and we, you should read Jack Lee Forbes, promoting all these people that are really, have really fucked up ideas. And, and it's weird because, like, are you doing it to, like, because you hate me, or are you doing it because you actually believe in this shit? Because you believe in it, you're a fucking idiot, right? Straight up. So um, I think that's the issue we have now. So, you know, if we talk about decolonization, and when I talk about decolonization, I'm talking about decolonization like Canada, U.S., Mexico. I try not to speak out of turn. I'm not trying to speak for Central Americans. I'm not trying to speak for South in South America. I speak specifically for these three spaces. I try to speak for because I think if we decolonize, you know, if we have you know in Canada and U.S. we have similar um, sovereignty, tribal sovereignty, right? But at the same time, in Mexico, there's that sovereignty is not there. Like in the U.S., indigenous peoples are political class. You know what I'm saying? So we, we have specific laws that that point indigenous communities, indigenous peoples as political as political class, not a race. And, you know, even like the whole conversation of indigenous peoples as a race is very problematic. because You can't lump up all indigenous peoples as one race. There's so many different communities. You know, that's like eugenics. It's like best sellers again. But in Mexico, we have to talk about what, you know, what decolonization looks like. And to talk about that, we have to talk about how to promote sovereignty for these communities, to form their own governments, to make laws, to decolonize, right? And I don't see how Aslan, in any of these decolonization scenarios, how Aslan is like, it's okay in any of them. It's not. 
Does anybody have a comment before I keep ranting? <laughs> I can keep ranting forever. Yeah, I mean, I was just want to comment on the in uh, Mexico, like the sovereignty of uh, a specific nation or whatever. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. Like in certain terms, there it would be less sovereignty there, or it, it's more confusing what it means exactly. But I mean, and in certain terms, there's like there's more sovereignty, you know, in the, in other areas, um, like. Like, uh, language and uh, I mean in certain towns literally there is uh, like the Zapatistas right like there, there's no Mexican government there and uh, like some Maya communities and um, Charan Michoacan who also has a indigenous government and then you also have like the council of indigenous like the indigenous congress in Mexico uh, where like uh, a bunch of different indigenous uh, nations send their uh, they have their own congress sort of thing uh, sort of apart from the Mexican Congress. Yeah, but uh, in terms of like in the political legal system of Mexico, like there is less sort of uh, protection there, I guess you you could say, or less defined like norms and like legal systems and everything. And we always hear in Mexico and Latin America that whenever an indigenous leader speaks up about corporate corruption, you know, corporations come in there extracting whatever resources, they get assassinated. Yeah. Happens all the time. So, you know, yeah. So, like, you know, oh, we're going to protest Coca Cola assassination, right? And of course, you know, these corporations are in bed with, you know, the Mexican government. I mean, we all know, I mean, the Mexican government, US government, the Canadian government, all corrupt, you know, corporate fucking puppets. Yeah. So, I mean, if we need to go, we need to make sure we understand that Mexicans, the Mexican government is a seller state, right? Yeah. You get decolonized by promoting. Uh, the sovereignty of indigenous communities, but they like people like to say when they hear, especially. So I've been I've been getting this rebuttal all the time. So I, I say that you know we have to promote sovereignty to indigenous communities in Mexico, and they have to know you know they they will say what that looks like because even here in the U.S., like citizenship and, and all these laws look different in every community. There's 574 communities; they all look different, right? The types of the, the, the types of government in the U.S. and in Mexico is the same thing. You can't expect it to look like us here in the U.S., right? So, in both people, Chicanos will rebuttal. They'll say, "Well, you believe in? Oh, you're trying to push blood quantum on us? No, because blood quantum comes from a very specific history seller colonization when it comes to allotments and trying to break down reservations and trying to individualize natives within that. That's where blood quantum comes in, right? But in Mexico, there isn't that. There's there is no breaking down reservation. There was, you know, for you know individualism. So no, I'm not trying to do blood quantum too. You know, I'm not trying to promote first off, I don't even agree with that ideology of blood quantum, right? But so when people are listening, so I get this a lot. They'll say, oh, you believe in blood quantum. Oh, American uh, sovereignty, native sovereignty is blood quantum. It's not blood quantum, dude. Like there's tribes, there's communities that are trying to get rid of their blood quantums requirements through amendments within their own tribal government. And there's a big movement going on right now, right, within tribal communities. So uh, to push against that, um, I think, uh, I forgot, I heard a, a, a show today it was a community in, I think it was in Michigan, that they were talking about changing their their enrollment um, enrollment uh, requirements because it was written. Their enrollment criteria was written in the 1930s, and that was by white people, and they want to change that, and they should. 
right? If you're stopping people, we should update that. We should you know, update our requirement. A lot of people move into lineal. So like, hey, if you can move or you're part of the community, you can get enrolled, right? Um, there's other, you know, there's even the, the talk about adoption. But even that, you know, is, is very tricky. You know what it looks like in Mexico? I can't tell you because I, I, I'm not part of those communities there. Right. But the point is, like, decolonizing is to empowering these communities, you know. But the moment you start pushing everybody's indigenous, if anybody, if everybody in Mexico is indigenous, then first off, that's historically wrong. But if everybody historically, you know, if everybody in Mexico is indigenous, then what indigenous rights won't matter. Then these communities' rights won't matter. Right. We have to put these communities, their, their living communities first. Right before we start talking about some fucking silly nonsense like all Mexicans are indigenous, which is, nobody nobody talks about that in Mexico. Nobody says, oh, everybody's fucking indigenous. You know, I mean, there's a lot of pushback on itself from the indigenous communities, indigenous peoples from Mexico, from what I've heard, you know, and they, like I said, I said in the podcast, they had guided me through this. So, you know, and, and you know, this is what Chicano, we're going back to the whole you know, point A is like Chicanos believe they're they're, they're Aztec, whatever. All of them are Aztec, and that's silly. You know, um, so um, but I do want to say one thing. There is a book from Miguel Pendas. It's called Chicano Liberation and Socialism. Have you guys read that? So in this book, uh, Miguel talks about how there is a hesitancy within the Chicano. It's written in the '70s. I bought it, um, and uh, and there's a there's a hesitant within the Chicago communities to adopt Marxist ideology, right? And in this book, he's trying to convince, like he's like a Chicano, it's a book written by Chicano to Chicano. So he's trying to convince Chicanos to actually that, you know, Marxism is actually the way to go, which is, is good, it's good, you know, I agree. Marxism, or, you know, like as an economic thing should be to push, you know, it's an ideology to understand it, but, you know, while I was reading this book, and I have a really big question. So a question for Joey and for ML is, let's say Aslan or, you know, the U.S. turned socialist or communist, whatever. And and then a, a territory was put aside called, you know, Aslan or whatever. And it was, it was autonomous states. What is stopping Chicanos from being like the bourgeoisie? Even if it wasn't communist, what if the U.S. government crumbled just like the Soviet Union? Right? It's possible, right? And different governments got put up, and Chicanos made a, a government in the Southwest, Aslan. Just pretend, right? What's stopping them from to be bourgeoisie? What's stopping them to say tornado people and you do 175 sovereign nations in this territory to say, hey, we're indigenous too, so you know your sovereignty doesn't matter? What's stopping them from doing that? And that when I read the book, that's the question I thought in my head. I was like, if the power was given to Chicanos in this territory, wouldn't they be the bourgeoisie again? Why, why wouldn't it go back to the indigenous communities, right? Why wouldn't it be a decolonial state? It's like people that talk about California bringing apart and creating a new government, a new state. Why wouldn't it go to native people? Why does it have to go with fucking white people? <laughs> you know, California white government, why? So this is, this is my question to both of you. Okay, so yeah, that's... that's um. That's what I also feel as well, because like if the United States somehow crumbles and and Aslan becomes like a supposed replacement of the Southwest, I would just think like it would be very similar to like the history of like like I mentioned before, uh, northern Mexico, where 
they're like northern Mexico's dynamic is very similar to the West because there are populations of like Mexicans that re that migrated from the central part of Mexico towards the north. And when they when they settled there, they had a lot of confrontation with the indigenous nations there. And <laughs> there was many there's many reports where literally people from the central government, well, when they settled over there, they wanted to basically like promote the idea of like eliminating these 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 populations because they're so uh, so supposedly high quotation marks. They're like raiding, they're occupying their lands, they're taking all their stuff. Very much language like what um uh, Euro Americans say when they migrated towards the West and basically pro- uh, petitioned towards the central government to send them forces to basically remove all these populations. And the central government was like, oh, hold on, that's that's a little bit too much. Like in the mid in the middle of the 19th century, that's there. They were not s- super into that idea. But in the turn of the century and the establishment of like military colonies, they call themselves military colonies. The the national government, the na- the Mexican uh, nation state, established itself very much throughout uh, the north and basically displaced these indigenous populations. And this displacement, this this possession, is still continuing because Mexico. If people are familiar with with the national news recently, there is a um a news leak uh, of the secretary of of national defense. It's basically the the Department of Defense of Mexico. Um, there was like a leak that revealed that they were using just like NSA type of of software, Pegasus from from Israel, to to spy on the Zapatistas, to spy on feminists, and to spy on environmentalists. Which environmentalists in Mexico are typically indigenous. So yeah, there's there's definitely. Um, there's there's a there's an interesting dynamic that the nation state has with these populations, and it makes you question what is the the principal contradiction of the area, specifically in the north. I think that's wild how the Mexican government works with Israel. That that's telling. <laughs> just just saying, I don't even know <laughs> that's fucking real scary, right? Yeah. Um, but I think yeah, it's typical of settler states to kind of work with each other, you know. But I think one thing people don't understand is the history of settler colonization in Mexico is Mexico, there's actually bounties in Mexico to kill uh, native people, right? For scalps and, you know, bringing you know, their scalps in. And, and it, you know, like you, if you look up the Comanche Mexican War, Apache Mexican War, obviously, you know, you can see like even Geronimo, you know, Mexicans, the whole thing about Geronimo is, you know, Mexicans killed his wife and his kids and he went, went to the U.S., and he hated Mexicans all his life, right? And I think, but we have to understand too. So, really quick history lesson, right? Is that uh, in Texas, you know, uh, before the U.S. took over, uh, the Comanches were depopulating New- northern Mexico. So a lot of people were like, "These motherfuckers are too aggressive," right? So people were leaving North Mexico. So what happened was uh, Mexico decided to copycat American immigration policies, right? So Mexico was telling people like, hey, guys, anybody want to come to Mexico, we'll give you like thousands of acres of land. So what happened was people were coming from around the world to sell into, into the U.S. in Mexico, used the settlers 
to settle in places to to colonize them. And one place was Texas, and there was uh, you know Germans as well. There's a there's a Fredericksburg is the big German colony in in Texas, right? But one famous family were the Parkers from the East Coast, the Americans, and they came in. Right. And they were like, oh, we're going to settle up there. And people were like, don't go up there. Comanches are there. Right. And then they still did it like idiots. And they got raided. And Cynthia Ann Parker became a captive. And she grew up with Comanches. And she had, she obviously had a got married with a Comanche. She got adopted into it. She, you know, married. And uh, her baby was, her child was Quanta Parker. So the history of Mexico trying to colonize people. You know, it's the story of Quanta Parker. <laughs> People don't realize that's the our histories are intertwined. Comanche history is is us pushing back against Mexican colonization and Spanish colonization and American colonization, right? These things are not very well known by these people that promote Oslo. They think that we have some, you know, uh, similar history. The role indigenous rolled it together in a har- harmony, but we we didn't, right? And you know, there's Say so much again in Comanche circles, it's a slur because of what happened in the past, you know. And there's they're, they're still like, you know, but I think people need to understand that there is a history, and you know, we have to talk about this history in order to move forward. And nowhere in this in this podcast or even me thinking that all Mexicans are bad, all Chicanos are bad. And but I do want to say we have to unpack the history, we have to unpack these ideologies to, to know how to move forward in solidarity. It's the same thing with, with American Anglo uh, Marxists. You have to unpack that history in order to, to live together in, in solidarity, in order to, to solidarity within the class struggle as well, right? We have to, we need, we need allies. We need to know Black history. We need to know Black history in Mexico, right? Which is not talked about often. And Indianismo, we push that, push that aside, you know? Black history in Latin America, in outside of Mexico, which is it's very, very huge. So I think, you know, in order for us to really decolonize, we have to understand each other and see why Aslan is fucking problematic. So people listening, I hope you understand that this idea should not be promoted. You know, if you go back to episode, you know, um, I think it was our episode 108, oh, 105, right? And, and then the one, the one with Chicano nationalism, 110, it's, it's, it's borderline. It is eugenics, but it's almost like Nazism. Like eugenics is like, you know, indigenismo. And I'm really close to just straight up calling it like Nazism because Vasconcelos' book, The Rasa Cosmica, it sounds like a it is it sounds like a Nazi book, man. Like it was hard for me to read it. I, I had to put it down and walk away from it for like an hour and come back to it because it was so disturbing that this dude talks of like breeding out native people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean the whole thing about the the Rasa Cosmica is that it was a response to the eugenics movement in the U.S. at the time, but it was just like an inversion of it, right? So it, it was like, instead of, oh, no, it's not bad that uh, that we have different genetics, it's actually a good thing. <laughs> uh, but like, it, it's like, it's just accepting all the underlying racist, uh, like, science, quote unquote, science that the eugenics movement uh, was purporting but inverting it right and saying that like, oh no, it's actually a good thing and we can get rid of all these uh, people of color uh, through, through these uh, through, through this uh, eugenics thing. Yeah, it's just uh, super weird. There's a funny Bad and Banana video about it on, on YouTube. <laughs> I, 
It's like reverse racism. It's the real reverse racism. <laughs> Wait, where's it like bad empanada? Yeah, bad empanada. I've never heard of that. I gotta go watch it. <laughs> He's all over the place. You never heard of him? No. I, you might have had it. That's funny. Yeah. No, I, I. It's like a Australian guy that lives in Argentina. Mm-hmm. So he has he has some good takes. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'll check it out. No, yeah. So I think um, I know we talked a lot. Does Joey have anything to say? And he stood up right now. No. Yes. No, I I think y'all have covered it well. Mike, questions? No, I mean, again, this is just very educational. I think it's great to have a lot of these concepts talked about because. It's weird. Like I think a lot about the the different words that different groups use to signify where they're coming from. Like if you hear people talking about liberty, well, now you know you're dealing with a bunch of like ANCAPs and libertarians, and they're talking about freedom for corporations to stomp over you or whatever. You know what I mean? They're talking about freedom yeah. for rich people. If you're talking about what is the word that they always use, it's um, agency or something. It's usually either agency or the it's another word that's similar to that for like the people of Taiwan or the people of Hong Kong or the people of like Iran. It's um it's not even the word agency. It's something like the self-determination or something like that. There's some key words over there that you always recognize. And, you know, you're talking to some New York Times liberals. You're talking to some people who literally just yeah. got their opinions straight from the Department of Defense. And they are concerned about the cause of the week because it's in the media and they never knew about it a week ago. And then when you get to, it's finally when you get to like the people who are actually concerned with liberation. And it's like, it's funny, it's a subtle difference, but the people who are concerned with liberation and they're talking about working class people, they're talking about marginalized groups. And then, you know, because so many people are trying to co-opt what the actual working class fighters are doing. It's like, I noticed the thing now, it's like, there's a, a study that's making headlines and they said that Gen Z is less tolerant of other people's beliefs than any generation before it. And all the conservatives are saying, oh, yeah, we knew it. We knew that Gen Z was actually less tolerant when you when you get down to it, even though they preach like they're tolerant. It's like, uh, no, that just means they're not tolerating your fucking shitty beliefs that are wrong. And they're not letting you just get a pass on being the the victim for wanting to continue to believe in the wrong thing, despite the facts being right there in front of you. And that's always their their ploy, right, is that they they're saying you're not tolerant of my beliefs. It's like, no, we're just trying to tell you that you're wrong and you're being stubborn about it. So just stop being a fucking dick. And I don't know, I'm getting off on a tangent about right-wingers, but I meant to say that there are a lot of people who can be easily misled by this language because that's mm-hmm. a lot of it is intentional. Like these people are trying to use the language of acceptance and of tolerance and fighting for freedom, and they co-opt it in such a way that you can get misled into something like Aslan, especially if you are like an online person like I was and you're just getting into this stuff. And if you don't know about just material conditions, if you don't know how to look deep enough into that to actually find who was there long enough, like... Who is actually indigenous and who is like where the material conditions lie here? And so I, I'm just glad that, you know, we have somebody like Rick who collects a number of books that can actually explain it for us and get into the details because I, I wouldn't be able to do it myself. So thank you. I think one thing, certain things you said are really important. First, obviously, like the online discourse, because there's a lot of bad online discourse. We talked about this in a previous episode, but like it kind of, I don't know why I had like a flashback. That the, I think one of the very first time I saw that, that it, it was very problematic was when the, the Coney 2012 came out. Remember? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where everybody was like, Coney 2012. I was like, who the fuck is Coney? Right. And <laughs> those yeah. memes and shit. And I was like, what the fuck this guy? I was like, why are people obsessing over Coney? Right. But I think the State Department does control narratives online, you know, and I think we have to be really careful. And there's a lot of like decolonizing Russia from the State Department. Like, who the fuck are you talking about? Decolonizing? Yeah. Oh my God. Like, clean your house first. Yeah. Like, what the fuck do like, 
You know, it's like somebody telling somebody, hey, man, your house is dirty when their house is dirty as fuck. It's like, chill the fuck up. You know, like, chill the fuck out. But I think what we have to understand is that narratives are controlled as well within Chicano academia, within Chicano circles. And they get really, really aggressive when these things get brought up, right? I had a, a, a friend that's native, and that person told me that he saw, I think her name is Chedi Moraga or something like that. She's a Chicana a scholar, whatever. And she said that indigenous studies should just be absorbed into Chicano studies. And I was like, oh, what the fuck, right? Yeah. You can't say shit like that. And she, Moraga is very, very popular out there with doing the Chicano studies, whatever. And I think she's, that's a really horrendous thing to say. And I hope she's listening. But I, you know, <laughs> I think it's one of those things that you cannot say stuff like that. But, you know, these people, like just like Mike said, they don't understand basic how to analyze the world you know, do dialectics. So they don't understand material conditions. So they you see things, what they were taught and the very liberal, blah, 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 garbage, you know, vomits. They're saying mm-hmm. what a lot of academia is. I like academia, but at the same time, I acknowledge that there's a lot of stellar conversation within academia, right? Mm-hmm. And it's hard because, you know, there's native people that go in academia and they come out and they, say they have really good work, but some of them come out saying a lot of fucking liberal garbage, you know? And we have to shuffle through that, especially if you're not native, you have to shuffle through all that stuff and say, oh, this person's a fucking liberal, right? All that person. So now, you know, we have to understand and, you know, like, uh, just be careful, man, who you get this indigenous knowledge from. If somebody is not from fucking Mexico and they're talking about Mexican indigeneity, maybe they should shut the fuck up, right? <laughs> it's just straight, straight up. Right, somebody because you, you, just like here in the U.S., people don't understand that that natives are a political class, not a race. Right, so we that itself, people have to learn. Right, and in the whole history of our sovereignty, and I think that's what's that that missing contradiction within Marxist in North America, globally. Right, so can you imagine like American Marxists don't understand this. Other Marxists globally are going to be like, what the fuck's going on over there? Like, what the <laughs> fuck is this sovereignty shit? So, yeah, that's the, that's the other issue. Mm-hmm. ML. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, just to speak about the, the aggressiveness, uh, the pushback, I mean, uh, when we were trying to change our name for Mecha, because it, it used to be an acronym, right? Uh, Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Astlan. So it had, you know, Chicano and Astlan in there. Uh, and in 2018, we started moving uh, towards uh, getting rid of that and changing the name of the organization. Uh, and the backlash that we got online was oh crazy. so wild! I remember <laughs> that yeah, that was uh, an NPR article. Yeah. That was articles on on like a bunch of news uh, outlets and like uh, I oh man, I was like 24 seven fighting people online on on my face on the on the Mecha Facebook page. And it was just like a mess. It was a, a complete mess. mess. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then, I mean, yeah, yeah. But you know what's funny about that? I mean, the, the whole irony of that is, I, 20, it was 2015, right, you said? 2018. Was, oh, 2018. Okay. Because yeah. I remember somebody sent me an article, and I was just like, oh, my God. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. And I was actually trying to find that next chapter that, that suggested this. I was hunting, right? And that's like that's the year that I started the podcast, 2018. And I, I was like, man, who are these kids that did this? Like, I want to I want to interview them, right? 
And lo and behold, like years later, me and you were talking, it was you were part of that group. And I was just like, what the hell? But I remember like the young Chicanos, I mean, I, I, I do want to say the younger generation are pushing back against this narrative. So like I said, not all Chicanos are bad. It's just the older, what they call Chicano sources, right? And yes, this is the term I heard during that time is Chicano sources. It's like the old school Chicanos that believe the Indianismo shit, right? And they, they'll, God damn, they're so anti, you know, this, the, the, the critiques. And it's like, my point of view was, is it academia where we welcome critiques, right? And they're over here just denying. It, it, I was just like, it's so, so fucked up how, what I was reading online and people were coming after me too, because they were like, oh, like, they were like, oh, it's because of Rick, like, you know, this, this narrative's being pushed. And I was just like, dude, I'm only one person. These kids are smart enough. I don't even know these kids, right? right. So, yeah. And there was this one particular person, or or I don't know if it was, there was this one particular, uh, like, sort of uh, arguing, uh, you know, aside from just the Chicano sources, also the people that were like, uh, talking about like this Nikon Nikon Glacken. Oh, the Mexica um, movement. Mexica movement. Yeah. So yeah, like oh they were gosh. like they were hella like messing in uh, in our DMs, like just attacking us, right? And I was like, what the hell are you talking about, Nikon Glacken? I don't know. I, I hadn't heard about that. I had to look it up. Um, but yeah, it, like they came after us as well. And then uh, who else? Um, there was some uh, Marxist organization that came after us because. They're based in uh, California, and uh, they still believe a lot of the like sixties. You know, they was that they, a Chicano Marxist organization? I think the one we no, talked no, no. about before. I, I don't know if it's. I don't know the Chicano because like the leader is not even a, a Chicano. He's oh, like Central American. Yeah. Um, it's Union del Barrio. Oh damn! You know. Really? But yeah, okay. but I, I do. Going back to the Mexica movement. Going back to even the narratives, like building these narratives and how mm-hmm. I remember back in the day, uh, early internet, like 2005, 2008, I was seeing this, this Mexica movement, Nicaragua, whatever, phrases and Mexica movement. There were like only like 10 of them in the little group. And I went to speak with them and I have stories about the Mexica movement, how they were like trying to get, trying to get people to disenroll themselves from the tribe. They literally were saying like, oh, you, you know, being enrolled in the tribe is colonial because tribal governments are colonial. And I was just like, what the fuck? Right. I, I tried to talk to them about sovereignty, you know, and they're like, no, you should disenroll. Like, we we want to put all, all native people as Nicatalca to build some Aztec fucking empire. I was like, yo, this is real sick shit. And every, all Mexicans should, all, all native people should learn Nahua. And they were like, you know, reading Dirty now will do a book. And I and I asked them, I was like, hey man, you know, if if you know if indigeneity is part of community, if you have no elders, how are you learning any knowledge? And I and I shit you not, one other person said, F elders, they only tell stories. We get our stuff from books. And I was like, whoa, I'm out of here. Right. And I was just like, that is something you cannot say. And I was like, that's such a red flag. And I was like, fuck this group. And I tried to talk to them. I tried to tell them, hey, man, this is a problem. There's one person that left that organization. She's online selling online classes, still saying fucked up things. And I tried to reach out to her. And obviously, she, I know we all know who I'm talking about, right? And I left the Mexica movement. And um, she sells online classes. And she put, put you know, decolonial history, whatever. 
And it's just like, you're still exploiting. And this person, this person even admits that they don't know how they're native, exploiting indigeneity. But even back then, I saw that this, this, this rhetoric was going to be really dangerous and it has grown. It has morphed now into this really dangerous rhetoric of detribalized. And it's just, it's just that's the, the, the kid of that. So Dianismo, you know, obviously birthed Chicanismo, but Chicanismo has birthed Mexica movement rhetoric. Mexica movement rhetoric has birthed other stuff that's even more, like, as more dangerous than itself. And it's just birthing new fringe ideas, you know, to the point where, uh, just like in episode 108 on my podcast, where people are, are using Nazi aesthetics, fascist aesthetics, like fucking swastikas with like fucking Aztec swastikas or whatever, as like, you know, their ideology, like, you know, some, you know, eugenics and stuff like that. I don't know if you guys heard that podcast, right? I really I suggest this uh, listening to that podcast, but this is not a small thing. I've seen this a while and I tell people, hey man, that's going to grow into something really dangerous. And this is why I always, I always tell people, hey man, seller nationalism is not, we cannot indigenize seller nationalism. We have to decolonize, right? And I think this is, and it's, this, these things are growing. The internet breeds fringe ideologies. So, but there is a lot of pushback, just like you, the, the, the younger people, the younger Chicanos pushed back on it. And I was thankful for that. And I still am. Uh, but more and more Chicano, you know, youth are coming forward. I think there's going to be a reckoning within academia sooner or later from the youth, right? So... <laughs> Oh, I put a meme in the chat. I saw yeah. a meme earlier today. It was like, yeah, I'm a mega communist. Make America go away. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> I am yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think even, even the, yeah, you're right, the MAGA communists are French ideology from the internet. Actually, they're from like, we all know they're from like... Yeah, Chinese. we know where it comes from. Yeah, and they're fucking douchebags and they're, they're fucking... The douchebags. You know, but... <laughs> but you know but that's that's you know that's they but they, if it wasn't for the internet nobody would be imagine right now no if the internet didn't exist nobody would be like i'm a manga communist no fuck yeah. that shit yeah. like, would even, nobody would be talking about it dude you know like that's fucking stupid but chicanismo we have to realize that chicanismo did spread out from the 1969 into they having their own departments in universities and that is where all these things are spreading. You know, obviously the internet, like I said before, internet is, is breeding more fringe ideologies from you know these indigenismo foundations. Right. So I do, I would want, I do want to say like uh, chicanismo is like not very widespread in actual uh, like uh, uh, like Mexican Chicano population. Like most people don't even give a fuck about that. Like. <laughs> At all. And uh, a lot of people think it's silly, yeah. actually, by the way. Like my mom, uh, when, like, actually me, when I first came here, I was like, everybody's not Aztecs? What are you talking about? Like, like that, I thought that was some really silly shit. And like, even my, my like, I have a, a friend in prison and he'll, he'll watch these people do like Aztec ceremonies sort of in like in prison. And he's like, these people are not even Aztec. I don't even know. They don't. They can't even speak. No, yeah. Like Mexica or anything like that. Like, like they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And uh, and so like a lot of people think it's silly for one. Like doesn't have like a widespread like reach in action in like the actual population. 
as uh, like people would like to have you believe online, you know, like a lot of these like Chicano nationalists, Chicanismo people that uphold these ideas think that uh, like the like the majority of the population will adopt these ideas if they just like would get it, them in front of them. But like most people are actually semi semi aware of these things and they just don't don't think it's like for real, you know, they don't they don't have any legitimacy in, in the population. I think you're right. I think, um, you know, this conversation we had is kind of like how they legitimize it, like, you know, like the, the, the treaty. And I always tell people, like, a lot of people quote the treaty, but have you actually read the treaty? I feel like a lot of Chicanos don't actually read the treaty. They just, no. like, repeat what they heard. Like, oh, the treaty yeah. of Guadalupe Hidalgo. But, like, have you read it? Like, I'll be honest with you. Like, so many people said it that I read it. And I was just like, this is garbage, mm-hmm. you know? And I was just like, this is a lot of problematic racist rhetoric in this, in this right. fucking uh, treaty. But that's the other thing. If I always ask people this question. So when I was a kid, I asked my mom, what is Chicano? I was like in fucking 10 years old. And she was like, those are just Mexicans. I think they're better than us because they're born in the U.S. I was just <laughs> like, I was born in Mexico. And I was like, oh, my God, why would they think that? You know, but in Mexico, yeah, Chicanismo is seen as, as like whitewashed yeah. Mexicans, right? As like sellouts, you know? So, you know, creating an ideology, using Marxism, it's a way to legitimate in academia to legitimize themselves. Um, but you know, I I don't see it's so weird to me, you know, like it's, it's, yeah. to me, it, it is a fringe ideology. So yeah. And um, like there's parts of it that are like sometimes like sort of widespread because of like movies and stuff. Uh, like blood in, blood out, you know, that has uh, <laughs> uh, this is like, uh, you know, it's a good movie, yeah, I, I like, like it, movie. but uh, it has a, <laughs> I like the movie, but it is very problematic. Uh, it, <laughs> even, even like, uh, one of the main guys is like a Filipino, he's not even Mexican. <laughs> the like, the, the what, what's his name? Uh, Choi, do you know? No, ah, damn, anyway, uh, but uh, yeah, the actor, I don't even know. One of the actors is a Filipino, not like the the boxer guy. El guy oh yeah, the, Chewy, the, I'm not old. <laughs> I'm not old. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, damn, I forgot what I was doing. Yeah, he, <laughs> but yeah, but that, that, that that's a conversation where it's like, uh, who's the Chicano? I think that was had before, you know. Yeah, so yeah. I think, yeah, but I agree with you. That's very even that white dude was a Miklo that he's you know because one of them yeah. and it's just like. But this fucking white dude becomes like Chicano or becomes Mexican. Yeah. Artist. Yeah. But. Uh, oh, I remember what I was going to say. Oh, like there's this like common like, like narrative among like the Chicano community that like grew up here, like that you get from movies about like how it's, it's harder being a Chicano than it is being Mexican because you have to be double, like twice as Mexican and twice as American or whatever. Right. So it's like doubly hard. And so like a lot of Mexicans, have heard that I think and, and I think it's really silly and like 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 what are you talking about man you live in the US it is easier actually <laughs> you know <laughs> um, so like they, they just talk about how because you're a Chicano and you live in the US you have to act more Mexican than the Mexicans and you have to act more American than the Americans and so this is why it's like harder to be a Chicano right so a lot of people hear that and it's like that is just a ridiculous thing to say, you know, like, <laughs> that has no, like, bearing into, like, <laughs> like, like how hard it is, <laughs> yeah. you know, to detach, I guess. Yeah, true, but, you wrote idealism, know. I agree. 
No, it's, it's also yeah. not understanding. Well, obviously, it's, that's your material conditions. You are, you know, living in the U.S. I mean, you know, you shouldn't. I always tell people, people should always, you know, be themselves wherever they are. I mean, like, if somebody if was a Mexican living in Washington, it's totally different atmosphere from Mexican living in, I mean, Chicanismo within California and Texas are, like, very different. Super different. Yeah. And people don't realize that in, in, in uh, Texas, that Tejano ideology is really big. And where does that fit in with Chicanismo, right? So there's there's a whole different variations of Chicanismo. And this is a whole different topic. But, you know, I think you're right. I mean, it's just like natives that living on the res or off the res. Like, just be yourself, you know, and understand your conditions, your material conditions, you know, as, as, as a person. So you don't have to outdo anybody. Just be yourself. You know, if you lived in a city, you lived in a city. You know, I think that's where it's kind of weird for me to observing that rhetoric too. You know, like I, I always have people tell me, you know, oh, you don't speak Spanish, you're not Mexican. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you know, like that's not that's a stupid thing. You know, like I do, Spanish was my first language because I don't speak as good as you. You know, like it's not, it's weird. Like this whole like uh, having to outdo somebody is just, it's just it's doing stuff. I mean, you can be allies to indigenous peoples. You don't have to outdo, you don't have to be more Americans than Americans. Like, who is a fuck, you know? Like, it's a weird thing. How do you be more American than an American? Like, <laughs> you know, like, it's, 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 being American itself is it's very ironic, you know? Like, it's just like a seller, genocidal, how much more genocidal do you have to be? <laughs> Christ, dude, like, okay, relax, you know? So it's not, you know, the markers are weird. But I think we're, we come in at two hours. Does anybody have any comments before we close out? I know Mike, it's getting late for Mike. He's, he's, he's on the East Coast. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, I'm not in any rush. It's like 10 here, but it's whatever. I got time. I have time to respond to sleep. <laughs> no, I'm good, man. <laughs> I mean, sure. I, I definitely want to get the other guys to uh, plug the Heat Wave podcast. I'm, I think everybody on my show is familiar with the Economist Buffalo at this point, but uh, the Heat Wave may be new to them. So you guys got to plug all your relevant social medias, of course. Yeah. I'll do the pitch. So the Heat Wave. We're a we're ran um, by Mecha Yasu. We're a show that basically covers n- news relating to like the southwest of the United States, um, northern Mexico. From from a communist perspective, we try to upload like two episodes a month, one news related, one topical, and yeah, um, we the 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 podcast has a uh, an Instagram which is at thw pod, but if you want to like be connected with Mecha, our, our organization, Mecha the issue is kind of like the part of so there's a national Mecha organization that is uh, pretty uh, liberal, pretty uh, identity based. So here in Mecha at ASU. Um, we're very much into the idea of creating a community-based organization that is centered around uh, promoting communism uh, here locally here in um, in Phoenix. So if you're listening to this episode and you're in Arizona, um, hit us up, follow us at MechaASU on Instagram, on Twitter. We have a TikTok, but we don't really use it. But yeah, that's it. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Thanks for being for having us. Of course. Yeah, this is fun. Rick, you got anything else? Now you're muted. I was, I was muted, yeah. Is this the first time they were on your podcast? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I only actually found out okay. about the Heat Wave a couple of months ago. I've only heard a couple of your episodes, to be honest. But it was just by chance. Like, I heard of you guys some other way. And then 
Rick said he wanted to do the Uslan episode and said, yeah, I got these guys who are really into it. And then it ended up being you guys. I was like, oh, yeah, I know those guys and stuff. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I've got a network, you know, different Marxist platforms. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, like I said, I'm really grateful for even the work that they were doing. I don't know if you guys were in Metro, but oh, yeah, you were in Metro, but obviously um, ML was. But I think even the work that, that's being done by, you know, them and the younger generation, um, and, uh, you know, we're in a good path. So, yeah, listen to them, you know, and um, check them out, follow them, support any way you can, you know. Yeah. ML, do you have anything to say? before we clock out uh no just uh hit us up uh we have a couple of zines that we have published so if you want to read mm-hmm. those uh, let us know on the comments i mean on the comments on the dms for our page Mecha de ASU. and there it will be like d-e m-e-c-h-a and asu obviously like asu oh yeah yeah cool. all right so i put up there Thanks for doing this, Rick. I appreciate you putting together all these notes and running this. This was fun and uh, yeah. very informative. I think our listeners are going to like this one a lot, too. All right. Well, thank you, comrades.